Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Dr. Maurice O. Wallace, Professor of English and Associate Chair of the English Department at Rutgers University and the author of King's Vibrato, Modernism, Blackness, and the Sonic Life of Martin Luther King Jr. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wallace. Thank you so much, Professor Williams. I am so happy to have you here. After I came across this book, I think about a year ago, Mm -hmm. and I said, I got to have this guy on my show. (laughs) This, This book just looks fantastic. And as someone who does intellectual history, which really has, in terms of its his, its own history as a discipline, mm-hmm. comes out of literary theory and political studies of political thought and political thinkers. So I'm obviously attracted to this book for many reasons wow. and have been really looking forward to interviewing you about this well-crafted analysis of the sound of King in American history and culture. But King, as we know, also has ties to Boston and his historical ties to the city have been increasingly celebrated mm-hmm. over the last few years, more recently with the Embrace statue. Mm-hmm. I mean, King was here from 51 to 55, but also through the 1960s, Boston was the center of the civil rights movement. So I think it's an important book for us to discuss on this show. But first, let's discuss this sort of, before we get into the conversation about the book, let's discuss your research and teaching background in this first section of our uh, conversation. Sure. Tell us a little bit about your research and teaching background. First, let me say how uh, flattered I am to have been invited to be a part of this tremendous project. I appreciate your kind words about my book, and you are a welcome interlocutor I'm always interested in having more people to talk to about the things that preoccupy my mind as a thinking person, as a reader, as something of a contemplative. So thanks again for reaching out to me, and um, I'm very happy to join you today. A little bit about myself. If you're listeners have an opportunity or have interest enough to pick up my book at any point, you'll discover in the introduction that I hail from just northeast of Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm a product of the public school system there. I went on to college in St. Louis, Missouri at Washington University. And then I had to make a decision about my my future. I was at a crossroads and I thought I might either pursue a career in the academy or I might further my education and theological training. And I opted to pursue a PhD in literature, having been sort of really profoundly influenced by my academic mentor at Washington University, who is still 
teaching there. His name is Gerald Early, a fabulous uh, nonfiction writer, essayist. And that was really what drew me to the field in the first place, the study of literature, but most especially um, nonfiction prose. And it was then that I came to the work of James Baldwin, who is one of my literary heroes, obviously. But to speed things along a bit, I earned my PhD at Duke University, and I have been teaching African-American literature and culture, 19th century American literature, and cultural studies for almost 30 years now. It's hard to believe, but yeah, I'm coming on that anniversary in the next couple of years. I love history. I love literature. I love language. um, And my teaching has been expansive in that I've been in at least two centuries now dabbling in in literature in two, now three centuries. And I'm very interested in also thinking and writing across, across disciplines. But that's the, you know, that's the greater part of my, of my background academically and in teaching. So I'll just say that my teaching has ranged from classes At the undergraduate level, I'm teaching an introduction to literary principles. I might teach a course on slave narratives, to teaching courses on single author courses on James Baldwin, on Martin Luther King Jr., on Toni Morrison, and a little bit of everything in between. You mentioned, so there's two things I want to go back to, how you decided that you wanted to study literature. And you mentioned some mentors and and coming across the writings of Baldwin. I think everybody becomes a a literature major after they (laughs) encounter Baldwin. I mean, just a great American author of the 20th century. And so I, because we do have students listening to our show and they might be wondering as freshmen or sophomores, you know, I'm not sure what I want to major in. Did you come into your undergraduate education saying, I'm going to study literature, or was it more of a journey or a path in which you encountered a mentor? Yeah, yeah, it was a journey. And one that was rather arduous then, but I wouldn't trade anything for it now. So if there are undergraduates listening who are undecided about their major, you're okay. You're okay. I want to affirm that you're okay and you're going to find your way. This is as important a time as anything. Now, obviously, I realize that there are material restrictions. You don't have forever. I get that. But on the other hand, I'd urge you not to be apologetic about being undecided for a season because being undecided means you're searching. And searching is part of the education. So I did not enter college thinking I'd be an English major at all. I thought I'd be an architect. And 
architectural studio kicked my tail. Um, <laughs> architects, they stay up all night long. And if I had known that going in, I never would have begun a major in architecture because I know that is not my, that's not my gift. I need my eight hours. I can't function after a certain hour in any case. But given Hall, the lights were on 24 hours, it seemed, and there was an expectation that we'd be there. And I just really wasn't, it sounded like a really nice professional career that let me be a little creative, but but I just didn't find design studio to be compelling to me. And I was taking writing classes and I had a professor who thought my writing was was decent, was respectable. And she's the one who turned me on to James Baldwin. He wasn't even on the syllabus, but she mm. called me aside and said, I want you to read this. And it was Notes of a Native Son. And it changed me forever because I saw something of my life reflected there. And I never looked back after that. Mm. You know, my my father, my mother and father, they wanted the best for me, obviously. And they urged me toward, toward law school. And I had considered that, but there was really nothing about legal writing. Again, I think, you know, coming from a middle, uh, a working class, middle class background, I think my parents and and their generation were particularly interested in, in making sure we experienced and achieved something secure. And when you're searching, security is not the highest priority, right? It is fulfillment. It is contentment. It is a sense of purpose. It is a sense of direction. And so I understood my parents um, urging me toward law school, but I resisted and found my way on the strength of, and I will say this, I have to say this, representation matters. I don't think I would have ever conceived of pursuing a degree in English, either as a major or as an advanced degree, if I had not had the experience of having an African-American professor in front of me teach this literature that I so grew to love. And it was like a light bulb one day that came on and I said, ah, I can do this. I can't do it now, but but if I put my head to it, this is something I could really, I could really get into, something that could really motivate and keep me driven and happy. And that was the beginning of it. And I went on to grad school at, at, at Duke and had tremendous direction there. I, I want to name my, my dissertation supervisor because uh, two of them, actually, because they were so really they were so helpful to me. One of them demonstrated something to me in, in the deepest and most profound way. And I'm still quite friendly with both of them. The first one is. Carla Holloway, who was a professor emeriti from Duke, a prolific, beautiful soul. We became friends and we remain friends to this day. She's been a she's been more probably more generous to me in this profession than anybody I know. And then my second supervisor was Kathy Davidson, who was a, a tremendous and continues to be a tremendous 
a scholar of American literature and and these days digital humanities and so on. But she was very, very generous at a time when I was quite lost and mm-hmm. searching. And those mentorships have meant everything to me since then. So I hope I've helped both, you know, undergraduates listening and maybe some graduate students who are listening as well. I think graduate students need mentors. Yes. Um, I don't know how you survive without one. And maybe your your difficulty isn't, you know, your intelligence. Far from that. You were admitted. Maybe it's just the lack of direction that that is failing you because no one has either reached out or you haven't reached out. You know, none of us is an autonomous genius. If we're a genius at all, it's because somebody gave us something and someone's giving us something and some someone is pushing and prodding and that sort of thing. So I know we're here to talk about my book, but mentoring is one of the things I love about my job. Yes, we, we, could, too. we could almost have just a conversation about that and I would be equally excited. But thank you for asking. No, I, I think you gave us some very important information about seeking out mentors who are kind and compassionate about what they do. Yeah. Also, we encounter in the classroom. So students uh, listening, definitely seek out your mentors on that campus, mm-hmm. you know, and they will help you find your way. The best mentors will will guide you well in your academic journey. So let's turn more directly to your book. It's richly interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's it's history, it's you know cultural studies, it's theory, mm-hmm. it's all of those things done well. Mm, thank. You. But sure, absolutely. The the debate about interdisciplinary studies and what that looks like. So King's vibrato seems highly interdisciplinary. So talk to us a little bit about your own definition of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That looks like even when you approach this project, you probably said to yourself, given the, the conversation about architecture mm-hmm. and King's vibrato, what does that what is interdisciplinary studies? What does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? Wow, that's a that's a great question. And I have to say that I was probably engaged in interdisciplinary studies unconsciously before I was consciously. I should say that when I was in graduate school, um, I belonged to a department that was not only deeply invested in historical literary studies, but was also very deeply invested in uh, critical theory. And it was at, I think, the beginning of maybe the pinnacle of the early interests in bringing philosophy and literary studies together under the rubric of literary theory. And so I had I was shaped by a kind of interdisciplinary intellectualism that was just in the air of my graduate education. And again, some of my work then was affirmed because it was interdisciplinary without me exactly trying to be interdisciplinary. But I have thought 
a lot about interdisciplinarity and cross-disciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. And these are really important categories for me. In the first place, I think I just want to point out that that disciplinarity itself is really a way of organizing knowledge. Mm. Um, And so if we understand that it is an organization of knowledge, then disciplines need not be understood as somehow natural, as somehow coming to the mind in these easy, facile divisions. Now, we need organizations of knowledge. That's not to discount how important organizations of knowledge are, but it is to suggest that there might from time to time be reason to disorganize or reorganize knowledge. There might be occasions where the line between disciplines by necessity is obscured, is vague, is, is erased, is crossed and transgressed. And I think that that is really, that is really key. I guess I would also say by way of definition that I, I, I tend to think of, of interdisciplinarity as travel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which is to say that I live in a particular country and I want to know as much as I can about the country I live in, but that does not diminish my curiosity in other countries. And so for me, interdisciplinarity is travel, um, but it's responsible travel. It is travel that that is motivated by deep curiosity it is also travel that comes with a deep ethical commitment to the other countries, as it were, I may travel into. So if I'm going to write about architecture or import architectural ideas, if I'm going to import musicological ideas into my work, it's not enough for me to simple to simply include references and to invoke terms but rather i have a responsibility to learn something foundational about those other countries right especially if i'm going to claim interdisciplinarity yes. if i'm going to if i'm going to have dual citizenship I need to know the laws of my country and my native country and the new country as well. So so it's important for anyone, I think, who undertakes interdisciplinarity to understand that this isn't we aren't just passing through extracting information or ideas. I, I think we are I think we have to assume a certain kind of humility and responsibility toward the other disciplines that we are entering. So for me, it's important to have readers and friends from other disciplines who will hold me accountable. You know, the very first sort of trotting out of ideas I had with King's Vibrato included a musicologist 
who thought it was really, really important, probably more important than I knew then, that I wasn't cheapening the vibrato mm. in music education, in music theory, right? And right. she was really serious about um, making sure that what I was referring to as King's vibrato was indeed a vibrato in the ears of musicologists. And so she affirmed that indeed those, those moments, those particular moments in King that, that not only have I identified, but, but Rick Lisher, uh, Richard Lisher, who authored the earlier work, The Preacher King, whose text I use in my book, and one of the things that Professor Lisher says is that the vibrato is present in all of King's preaching. That's just not some throwaway phrase. That's a very serious assertion in the ears of musicologists. So that's one sort of example of the kind of intention that interdisciplinarity or interdisciplinary scholars, I think, have to have. It's one thing to cross into disciplines. I think it's something discreetly different to be an interdisciplinary scholar because an interdisciplinary scholar is creating almost something different, right? It's a gumbo. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate it too much, but but it's one thing to, to have you know, one foot in one field and another foot in another field and walk up, walk parallel lines, right? Where your, your identification with those fields, with those disciplines, they, they have a kind of adjacency, right? But, right. but interdisciplinarity means you're mixing it up. And the risk of mixing it up, both the risks and the reward of mixing it up, is that you might actually create something else, a third thing. And so I like to imagine that what I am doing is pursuing a third thing. Even if I don't always successfully achieve it, I'm I'm trying very hard to be true to the way my mind thinks, which isn't always obedient to disciplinary bounds. But I want to be responsible for the for the transgressions that my mind might might invite or urge me toward relative to the traditional organizations of knowledge that we call the disciplines i hope that has helped no i think it's a really a beautiful articulation of interdisciplinarity because as you said, we like to have our, I, I call them intellectual fiefdoms. Yeah. We sit <laughs> on our disciplines and we don't even take lunch together or break bread. The English department is over here. The math department is, you know, just the nature of how the corporate university functions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, think, I think it flatters our disciplines if others are interested or at least curious about how or why we do the things we do. I wonder if we are so protective of our disciplines because we're afraid of the critique of others. But maybe those critiques are necessary. I mean, isn't that what we were trained in? 
it's not impossible, in other words, for someone from another field to offer a critique of another field that we might have been that we might have been trained in. And I think we can afford uh, a certain kind of grace and humility toward others if um, others outside of our field will honor our our preparation and our discipline with their own humility and and deep study into the things that we do. You're sounding very postmodern, Professor. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, modernism is, modernity and modernism, right, is one of those themes that run through your book. Yeah. And there was obviously in the academy this sort of revolt, yeah. right, against postmodernism. And I think it ties right into the notion of interdisciplinary studies. Is it real? Who who can actually master several fields at once yeah. and not water down, right, their quote unquote discipline? Yeah, yeah. And it gets us into another show, but this book yeah. stands as a, a work that does straddle many different fields, as you mentioned, musicology, the organ, mm-hmm. right? The role of the organ in producing this vibrato that King has, like this expressiveness, this changing, changes in expression. And just thinking about listening to his speeches, you could hear the vibrato yeah. on YouTube and listen to a clip of his speech and you could hear it move. So yeah. I think, you know, and talking about the photograph later in the book and like the sound of the photograph and the book, your book, King's Vibrato, is right in this new field that's been emerging over the last few decades, sound studies. I just interviewed Celeste Moore about her book, mm-hmm. Soundscapes of Liberation. So mm-hmm. I'm really like fascinated with this field as a whole. So how does your your book, King's Vibrato, sort of fit into this larger new discipline that is, you know, straddling many different subfields, really? Yeah, uh, I, I really appreciate how you um, phrased the work of sound studies as straddling a number or a range of subfields, because I think it's important that we observe that discipline and method are not always identical, right? And I think that whatever method, which which to my mind approaches historical in my work, even if there's a, you know, quite a bit of, of theoretical sort of application in it, there's a way in which the the several disciplines that I enter and try to be responsible for cohere in a meth- an identifiable method or two, right? So I just want to I just want to mention that, and because my intervention is, I hope, an intervention in how we historicize and how we think of history itself. In some ways, you know, if you take a step back from the biographical, performative, architectural, musicological details, oratorical details of my book, I I hope I am inviting us to consider 
that sound itself is historical. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think we are often misled into imagining that our hearing of Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice, for example, in the 21st century is going to be identical with what it was to sit in the balcony at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ or to be on the National Mall uh, 60 years ago, right, to hear the I Have a Dream oration. The speeches are the same, but the conditions of hearing are different. And for, you know, for one thing, our hearing of King's voice today is mediated by any number of technologies, right? And our hearing of King in 19, you know, 63 or 1968 also mediated, but the technologies are different. Yes. So I think we have to attend to those, those differences and to note then that sound is historical. That's what I was trying to get yes. this book. But, you know, in the mm-hmm. aftermath, I have also been thinking, and I think this is where my book finally ends up suggesting or, or provoking I'd like to go further to say that history or certain discrete historical moments have a sound, right? Which is to say that if you or I were sitting in our offices, for example, and we just opened our windows a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, if we're attentive enough to sound and sound studies, someone should be able to discern what period we lived in. Because history itself, modern history, postmodern history, antebellum history, postbellum history, history has a sound. And some of that sound has to do with the natural environment, changes in it. Some of it has to do, I think, with with developments in technology, it's it's one thing to for the soundscape to be industrial. It's another thing for the soundscape to be natural. And all I guess what I'm saying is that I want us to consider that sound is historical and that history itself has a sound. I'm, I'm hoping that we are opening our, our our ears to what's happening around us. And that often means foregrounding what tends to be backgrounded and backgrounding what is often foregrounded, right? So, you know, in my book, for instance, who really listens attentively to the pipe organ except other pipe organ musicians, right? Mm-hmm. But I want to suggest, no, that is actually really important background sound. It's part of a soundscape. And King's voice is developed out of that soundscape. So, yeah, I think that answers the, the, sure. the great question you put to me about, about history, really. Yeah. 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, it made me, when you were talking about history as a sound, it made me think about auto-tune and uh, how yeah. the first, yeah, the first artist, I think it was Cher, was the first you know artist to release a song with auto-tune. You could mm-hmm. say to yourself, well, Cher, she could sing. She doesn't need auto-tune. Right. It gets introduced, and when it's introduced with that song, it's like very robotic, and you're like, what is this? Yes. But now every major artist today even if they can sing or not, yeah. that the auto tune is under that voice. Yes. And how that could even it's gendered too. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. Britney Spears gets right auto-tuned as if she has like this weird baby voice, yeah. right? Yeah. It has a gendered dimension to it. That's an HD. Yeah. Listening to King in HD is like yes. high definition. You know, it's totally different from being on the mall in you know 18, 16, 1963 and listening to him in person. Yeah. And the point is not just to hear his words. I think that's what auto-tune gets wrong, right? Um, mm-hmm. in, in most cases, right? The point is to hear the sound because right. the sound, the intonation, the inflections, yes. all of that produce a certain kind of mood, I want to say, and a certain yes. kind of affect in us, Right. And, mm-hmm. and together, King's voice and the pipe organ in that in Ebenezer Church reflect a certain a certain kind of cultural and geopolitical mood, and 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 creates a sort of you know not a rhythm and a tone that captures. Black thought that 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 really reflects the mood of black life. Um, And it's 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 somewhere it's a kind of melancholic sound in the 50s and um, early 60s. Right. And it, it vacillates from dark tones to dark jubilee. But it's still somehow dark because. Black people can ill afford to celebrate without an awareness of mourning. Yes. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, right? Yes, it does. So mm-hmm. so as we're celebrating, mourning is in the background. As we're mourning, celebration is also a possibility, right? right. And so I like to think of, of, you know, as King, as embodying that not just King, but King in this in this book in particular, obviously embodying embodying that, and as a public figure, doing so in a way that simply resonates with Black experience, and of course, res- resonance is another sonic term. It hits us, it echoes, it vibrates in our bodies. That's what I want to get to. Like listening mm-hmm. isn't just an experience of the ears. Black folk, we listen with our whole bodies and we respond yes. with our whole bodies. Yes. Which is why, you know, call and response is, you know, the response of it isn't just verbal. Right. Um, it's sometimes expressions of sound that words cannot contain. It's a grunt. It's a moan. It's a shout. It's yes. extra verbal. 
but it hits us in our bodies and our bodies respond. And that's, you know, I, I, I think of that as black audition in this book, like our whole bodies are hearing King because he hits the right frequency for that historical period in these historical times, if that makes sense, or for these yes, in these does. historical bodies of ours. No, it absolutely does. And can you break down those elements that you talk about in your book that define the black preacher's performance or performative identity? You just started, we just, you know, call and response, repetition, emphasis on words and emotion. Just, just give our audience kind of maybe a general breakdown of, because Hey, those of us who've gone to church, we know the organ and when it plays and why it plays. And we know when the preacher says, amen, Uh can I get an amen? Yeah, you respond. Like, it's something that is in our bodies, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I want to add, it's in our bodies acutely when we're together as bodies, Mm. right? Um, Sure. But but I, I guess I should say in in black church historical contexts that that a good black preacher is as good as she or he is, not because the voice is always particular, but because the hearing is so good. Right. I think we undervalue. Mm. And, you know, it's it's interesting, and I think it's probably because we place so much emphasis on the value of the word that we think of the word as an independent object unto itself, when really the word has no meaning unless it's heard, right? That, that right. the word is an oral object, A-U-R-A-L, an oral object, a thing to be heard without which it is print maybe but it's not the word as we know it right or as we feel it in these in these historical black church black church contexts um, so you know i think it's the hearing of the preacher that is vital um because what the preacher is hearing is not her or his own voice so much as the direction that a congregation of attentive listeners is taking him or her, right? So what most people refer to as call and response, I think of as the co-production of Mm. a sermon, right? Because, you know, it's not simply that the audience is responding in the traditional sense. Sometimes the congregation is making the call and the preacher is responding, Right. Yes. yes. And so there are ways in which I think King embodied that King modeled that kind of dialogic relationship between congregation and speaker, one that doesn't privilege the speaker above the congregation, but invites us to consider the degree to which the speaker is responding equally as much to the congregation as the congregation is responding to the to the speaker and co-producing a sound event that we call the sermon. I'll simply add to that technology, architecture and instruments 
or instrumentation go alongside voice to create distinctive, the distinctive dark sounds that I identify with Black hope and resistance between 1932, roughly, and 1968, 1970, when something else happens, right? And, 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 the, and the sound changes. One of the things that happens in the, in the 60s is Black people become enamored of the Hammond B3 organ. And so folks aren't, you know, they aren't as impressed anymore with pipe organs, because pipe organs are kind of aspirational instruments for black people. Um, right. A Hammond B3 is, is fairly portable and you can take it into spaces that don't require the investment of such significant amounts of money for the construction of pipes and pipe organs in churches. But yeah, so I, I think a certain sensitivity to instruments, a certain sensitivity to, to technology, even how, how one handles the microphone is really important. One's, relation, one's relationship or one's voice's relationship to a microphone is, a, you know, is an unseen art. Like some people can use a microphone to great effect and other people's can, can murder a good sermon <laughs> because they don't know how to use a microphone. <laughs> This is true. And sometimes when, you know, I, I like your idea of the the collective production, mm-hmm. right? When you go in a black church, you know, the first thing the preacher is going to say, can I get an amen? Yeah. And everybody responds. And then sometimes to get a more, I'm not going to say, maybe a more robust mm-hmm. response from the preacher is for the crowd to say, preach now. Yeah. You always hear it, preach yeah. now. Yeah. You know, I, I think... If we were to sit down together and begin to translate for other audiences what we're hearing from that that congregation, we might include, can I get an amen as an expression of help? Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dying here. Help me. Right. Yes, <laughs> dying, yes. But I still want your involvement, your turn. Right. If we've created a dynamic together, I want you to be a part of this. Can I get an amen? And sometimes the preach, the the response that is preach is is to suggest you're in the right vein. Keep going. Right. Stay right there. It's you know, these are signals, cues that we have been sort of educated, socialized, ritualized into such that they are they escape sometimes conscious awareness but they're there and yeah i i think what king demonstrated and again i could have chosen other folks but king does it vividly and dramatically is to welcome others into the co-production of his speech making. He doesn't lord over his audiences, in other words. It's a democratic assembly. We are creating a speech event together. I think about Marcus Garvey. And when Garvey first came and gave one of his first like public addresses, he didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. Like he came back and realized, okay, 
And with all these new uh, mechanisms for producing sound, right, at that time, early 20th century, they the evangelist Billy Sunday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. was very popular. And Garvey kind of styled his yeah. his delivery yeah. after this white preacher who was going all over the place. And you had people like Amy Semple McPherson, too. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea that the new right, the Christian right shuns modernity. No, they don't. They right. use it to their advantage. Yeah. Yeah. They use it to their advantage. And 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 think about the degree to which um McPherson and and Sunday owe something of their charismatic performativities to seeing it first, seeing and hearing it embodied in black people, right? Yes. So so yeah, I think we just to say too that we have always been modern to (laughs) to to sort of steal uh, steal a phrase from a, a, a particular critical theories which one is that someone in the audience will will know in any case i think it's really important that we remember we remember that and it's and it and it's really yeah it's really key it's really key thank you for saying that so as we start to wrap things up i want to just that's to cover maybe two more questions one in particular you have an entire chapter devoted to women mm-hmm. and the women in King's life, including Coretta, who he meets in Boston and is preaching at that time, yeah. you know, when he's at uh, Boston university. So talk to me a little bit about Mahalia Jackson is kind of like the soundtrack to his sermons mm-hmm. in a lot of ways where he had this, you know, connection with her relationship with her. And that is a part of this whole story. So Tell us a little bit about how the women play a role. And then lastly, do you see anybody today that's sort of in a similar tradition? I thought of William Barber, but I think William Barber for me is in terms of his delivery is very, like very intellectual. Mm-hmm. Not that King wasn't right. Right? right. But so, yeah, let's, let's try to conclude maybe on those questions, the role of women in the story. Yeah. Let me say about, your your last comment, your your characterization of, of Barber, I, I think what we often forget, this is everyone forgets, that that the success of black preaching depends significantly on the degree to which the black preacher can voice the black people. Mm. And so if and I'm you know I'm very guilty of being a self-conscious public speaker because I want to sort of convey that, you know, I'm thoughtful and I study. But the, the, the challenge is that I can slip into an academic version of myself that doesn't speak quite the same language or doesn't speak in the same tones as the people I might be speaking to. So the success of the sermon happens when we meet, when my voice matches their feeling, right? Because in some ways, you know, the, 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 the preacher is not just the voice of God, it's the voice of the people um, right. as priests simultaneously. But let's get back to the to the question about women. You know, Coretta was, 
you know, a, a musician. She was a student of voice at the New England Conservatory, right? Yeah. Yes. So there's something about her musical sensibilities, her sensitivity to sound that could only have also both drawn her to King and enabled King, helped King in his, in his speech making, right? His mother was the organist at Ebenezer for many, many years. The, 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 the musical director at Ebenezer, he was friendly, had something of a sisterly relationship to Mahalia Jackson, who was, right. who I think had a, you know, almost a maternal feeling for, for King and was available to him at a moment's call. And she was also committed to the cause of civil rights, as was Aretha Franklin and her father, C.L. Franklin. I write about all four of those women in, in this book. And I, I, I'm writing about them not because they necessarily, that their sounds necessarily influenced King and made King great. I want to suggest that these women's sounds were great in and of themselves that hmm. they were musical peers or parallels to the oratorical king, which is to say that these women aren't accessories to king. These women are equal subjects with king in creating the sound that defines or characterizes or approaches the period under my Study The sound of the civil rights movement owes itself as much to Mahalia Jackson, Coretta King, who was who was going around the country sort of leading and performing in freedom concerts of her own arrangement. She was singing both concert European concert music and African-American hymns and spirituals and raising money for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The problem was for her that she was also a mother, which means that under the gender politics of the period, she was rather restrained in her movement to travel. Unlike King, who had who fully expected that her Duties as wife and mother um, at home would free him to do all the traveling. So, you know, King had some pretty conservative gender politics. We have to own that. Yes. And I'll just say that, you know, Aretha Franklin and Mahalia Jackson, Precious Lord, those two, those two and that song in particular are also really key parts of coming to understand the soundscape that both shaped King's voice, but the soundscape that created, that helped create and characterize the movement, the movement writ large. But yeah, these women are not accessories. They are full actors, cultural actors and agents, just as fully as King is. But to think about them is to also get us out of thinking about King's talents as inherited 
from his father, who was a preacher, his grandfather, who was a preacher, his great grandfather, who was a preacher. It's very easy to see that. And I think King fell into that trap himself of thinking, I I just inherited this genetically from the men in my family. And I'm suggesting that that's not that's not exactly the case because King's father didn't preach at all like King preached. King preached closer to the way his mother played organ than the way his father preached. Wow. That's a powerful move that a whole piece about the organ. Yeah. One of those elements, right. That shape his vibrato. I think that's just one another piece of the book that I just really love and argument that you advance. So who's, who's the heir to this tradition at the present, with all the technology about, I mean, do we even hear the sound of voices anymore? Yeah. <laughs> HD and auto-tune? I think that is closer to my position right now. I I hesitate to identify specific people who I think are sort of heirs to King because I, I hate, for two reasons, I'd hate for anyone to get the idea that I have a certain expectation or a certain evaluation of preaching that is based on King's King's success as a preacher. And someone listening will mistake what I say and suggest that I've identified one person as the next Martin Luther King Jr. I don't want to make that. I don't want to make that kind of claim. But the other thing is that. It's profoundly, it's gendered, right? Um, yes, yes. And if I were to identify folks, even if I identified a woman, the expectation of listeners is going to be that she has a kind of masculinized per- performance of preaching. And, I, you know, I don't want, I think before we try to identify who is King's heir in this tradition, we still have some more work to deconstruct the gendered nature of what good preaching sounds like in the first place, right? And then we got to deal, as you point out, with all of the technological mediation between voice. We hardly, I think our relationship to voice is necessarily is necessarily different. Yes. You know, when we think about voice, are we only thinking about human beings? We got to ask ourselves whether machines have voices. We're in the, we're in the age of artificial intelligence. I was going to say that the AIs do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone asked me about an AI, a simulation of Harriet Tubman. And I knew instantly that despite the effort, that was not Harriet Tubman's voice. And the, 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 the problem is that AI hasn't gotten to the point where it can control for region, for dialect, for pace of speech, for, for gender. And, and it doesn't want, in this case, it doesn't want to risk accusations of minstrel caricature by putting right. a, 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 a stereotypical slave's voice in the mouth of an AI Tubman, 
Right. So AI's got some work to do before it can convince me that it's even close to representing the historical voices of historically black personalities. Sure. Well, Professor, thank you so much for being a guest today with me on Black in Boston and Beyond. What a fascinating conversation. We might need a part two, Professor. <laughs> well, listen, I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate it so much. Thank you. <laughs>